Good Company is a production of iHeartRadio. What is that fine line between freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and something that could constitute something that should be off the platform? Hi, I'm Michael Casson. Welcome to Good Company, where I'll explore how marketing, media, entertainment, and tech are intersecting, transforming our lives and the way we do business at a breakneck speed. I'll be joined by some of the greatest business minds and strongest leaders who will share how they've built companies from the ground up or transformed them from the inside out. My bet is you'll pick up a lesson or two along the way. It's all good. It's a great pleasure today to welcome Carolyn Everson, the VP of Global Marketing Solutions at Facebook, to the broadcast. But on a personal note, it's great to welcome Carolyn Everson, one of my closest friends. Thank you, Michael. It's an honor to be here with you. Carolyn, it, it goes without saying that the vantage point that you have, and, and I remember well kind of spring of 2011 when you made the move to Facebook. I remember it well because when we chatted about it, I was in Southeast Asia. Yes, in uh, Vietnam. Exactly right. I remember exactly where you were I when I I was hiding you. under a staircase at Ho Chi Minh's home which is a, obviously a major museum, and I was being stared at by the uh, local authorities because I was hovering under a staircase on a phone call. But as I look back over these years, it's been extraordinary to watch what's happened to Facebook and the importance, and also how you have risen to the occasion and redefined the role of somebody in charge of revenue. Your primary responsibility is revenue. I get that. But you've also become an ambassador. You've also become a voice in the marketplace. How has that transition felt? Well, I remember the day well calling you. You're on my board of directors, so I typically call you for big decisions. And so, of course, I remember that conversation vividly. And when I was taking the job in 2011, I didn't quite know exactly what I was getting into. I mean, my team was going to be smaller than 100 people. The job on paper was much smaller than the role I had had at Microsoft and arguably even the role I had had at Viacom. But the mission of Facebook really attracted me to the company. And I also knew that advertising was the fuel that would fuel the mission and allow Mark and team to, to build and, and connect people around the world. So I went in probably pretty naive, to be honest, about what I was walking into. And when I look back now and say, okay, over the years, my job, my day job on paper is a responsibility for a large piece of the revenue. But the bigger role that I feel that I play is an ambassador, a spokesperson for the company. I think there's a variety of reasons for that. One, my own intellectual curiosity around understanding our policy issues, how we communicate our mission, how we're showing up in the market. I think Facebook needs to have a face to Facebook. And because of my role, I have a global role. I travel almost 90% of my time. I feel a, a sense of obligation when I go into any particular country to serve that role. I so, want people to know the Mark Zuckerberg that I know. So let's talk about travel. When I follow you on Facebook or Instagram, I'm tired following you. I can't imagine how you do it. I literally am tired following you in a good way. Well, to be honest, you travel crazy as well. And I think part of it is these jobs that you and I are in and, and others that we're, we're friends with that have these global roles. It's 24-7. It's intoxicating, I often say. You get in it. And when we love the industry, like you and I love it, it's really hard to, to just not be a part of it. And 
as much as technology is there for us and allowing us 24-7 connectivity, there's nothing that replaces being in person with somebody and having a meal, having a conversation, answering tough questions in person, doing press in person, meeting your teams. And so travel has just become an incredibly important part of it. But I've also learned so much from the travel. I've learned about different cultures around the world. I've learned the impact that Facebook can have in those different countries. And it's a very different point of view. If you're a West, if you're from a Western point of view where we have freedom of speech and we have a lot of rights that probably we all take for granted every day. For sure. Versus seeing some of the other countries I visit where they don't have those rights and Facebook is an outlet for them. And WhatsApp, if, if they didn't have WhatsApp, they wouldn't be able to communicate when their government has a, you know, a major takeover. And so it's the world has it's the travel has just opened my eyes and it's also changed the way I parent. I've been able to bring Taylor and Kennedy along along with my husband and I've tried to raise, you know, two young global citizens that are empathetic to the issues of the world. Well, I can speak to that personally having watched the girls grow up. You've done that. So congratulations on well, that. Well, certainly you trying. <laughs> you and Doug have done an amazing job of raising two wonderful young ladies and they are citizens of the world. That's a that's a privilege. Obviously, let's talk about the fact. I remember Carolyn, you talking about when you were in a different role at Microsoft at now a dozen years ago, talking about the next billion. I remember it was a meeting with Unilever, and you talked about the fact of the challenge of you had a billion interactions. How do you get to the next billion? When you joined Facebook, there was probably in the hundreds of millions. Correct. You're now at somewhere on 2.4 billion active users. I mean, the numbers are astounding. What's the challenge next? Three billion? Well, it's interesting because when I joined Facebook, it was just Facebook, the desktop application. And we had a, a, a mobile app, but it wasn't very good at all. And then we had to quickly rebuild the mobile app because the world shifted to mobile and we were behind. And that certainly accelerated our growth once we were available on mobile because so many emerging markets, they've completely skipped the desktop. They don't run Nobody is buying laptops. They're buying phones. But, you know, I want to jump in there because you stole my next question, which was we, we see so many companies today, what Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman are doing with Quibi and, you know, others that are, quote, mobile first. Your point is well taken. Facebook was not mobile first. And the pivot that you made as a company, and you were very much a part of that, was nothing short of astounding. It was boom, and you became mobile first, even though you actually weren't mobile first. We were not mobile first. I mean, I was there during that time, and it was a fascinating business shift to, to live through. And many companies don't make it through these dramatic business shifts, right? Think about Kodak when it went through the digital shift. It just didn't make it. So how did we go through it? It wasn't as easy as it might be perceived from the outside where, you know, Mark makes a speech at an all hands and everyone snaps to it and suddenly we become mobile. In fact, what happened is Mark talked about the need to become mobile first and mobile best and to rebuild the apps from scratch. We had no revenue on mobile. But then there was a meeting right after that all hands where a product team walked in and showed him mock-ups of a new feature. And those mock-ups were on a desktop. And Mark said... Did you not hear what I said at the company all hands? We're moving to mobile first, mobile best. And they walked out. Nobody wants to walk out of Mark's conference room having disappointed him. And that story spread like wildfire because the company was small enough where a story like that got around. And then everyone canceled their meetings with Mark for the next two weeks. 
because no one really was ready. But then they got it. And part of changing a company culture is you got to lead from the top. You have to set the tone. But then storytelling and the lore of like how that lives throughout the company really is what changed the company over those few weeks. And then we invested heavily in retraining everyone. But the mobile shift, so one was getting Facebook on mobile. But then it was actually expanding the Facebook family of apps. So Instagram wasn't a part of the family when I joined. And now that has over a billion people. Messenger was part of the Facebook app. It got pulled out during a hack. Nobody really even meant it to be that way. And suddenly it started taking off. And now that's over a billion and a half. And then we acquired WhatsApp, which is also over a billion and a half. So the family is now 2.7 billion people. But what's next is there's still over 7 billion people on this planet, many of whom don't have the privilege of having even basic Internet access, things that we take for granted. On our morning drive, people right now are being able to listen to the radio. They're able to get weather and information and news. If you're at a place where you don't have connectivity, you have no idea what the weather is going to be. That's the difference between a farmer in Kenya having a successful crop or potentially not a successful crop. So We feel a huge obligation to help bring connectivity to the billions that still don't have it. Along with that responsibility comes lots of obligations. And I've always likened the two words, responsibility and authority. I kidded years ago and say the greatest cause of ulcers and heart attacks in business are people who have responsibility without authority. You've got a tremendous responsibility because you're the touch point for 2.7 billion people. And you actually, in a funny way, do have the authority because you are the authority. I mean, Facebook can move markets. And and I'm going to come to that in a moment in, in terms of an advertiser perspective. But that responsibility, there's some friction around that these days. We have regulators, you know, lying in wait to change the world. And what I said on a podcast that I did the other day, and, and I said, just as was the case in financial services, with Sarbanes-Oxley having been an overreaction to Enron, in my opinion. I'd like to simplify things. Enron happened. It was a group of really bad people that did really bad things. And guess what? We got Sarbanes-Oxley. And many of us who have dealt with public companies understand that was in many ways an overreaction to a bad set of facts. What I said on the podcast I did a few days ago was my hope is, as the regulators around the world start to look at the platforms, they're going to get involved in regulating. The fear is they overregulate, and nobody wants that either. How are we striking that balance? And I mean, I know that's not your want to talk about policy, I mean, but you're involved in it. And, and so there's a, there's a balancing act there. Sure. I think first, let me talk about the responsibility piece that you have. Um, I think I talked about the biggest business shift at Facebook, which was the mobile shift. And we've had multiple business shifts, buying Instagram, getting into video, getting into messaging, Oculus, AR, VR. But the biggest shift by far, it dwarfs the others, is the cultural shift that happened in the company since the 2016 U.S. election where the awareness of the gravity of our responsibility really came to light. And I think part of it is, you know, there's unbridled optimism out in Silicon Valley. They, you know, people come in every day to build technology to be used for good. And suddenly it was being used for bad. And we were not prepared the way we should have been. And so that was a big wake-up call to the company. And the culture has shifted dramatically. 
Our investments have now paid off 30,000 people working on this issue. We spend more money on safety and security than we did when, when we went public, all of our revenue combined. So that's been a really important thing to see. At the time, though, when we have assumed and saw how important this responsibility is, we realized that some of these problems are way bigger than Facebook. Facebook should not be the only company dictating what content policies should be in place and what is that fine line between freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and something that could constitute something that should be off the platform. And especially now with a global population, we have no global mechanism to figure that out. We have norms in the U.S., those are different than norms in Germany. Those are different than norms in Thailand where you can't say anything negative about the king. And I could go country by country. And so Mark actually asked for help from regulators and said, we are open to regulation. It should be sensible. It should be appropriate regulation. And we've made significant progress with President Macron in France on that to say, what is going to be the definition of hate speech and can we get a global definition? But we're in new uncharted territory. And we're open to help now, but we want it to be right and sensible. And it's it's so interesting because in the U.S., the United States Supreme Court years and years ago got into the issue of what was pornography. And the old, not old, but the the definition. You know it when you see it. You know, Yeah, I can't <laughs> yes. tell you what it is, but you know it when you see it. I, I feel the same about hate speech. I can't tell you what qualifies as hate speech, but I know it when I see it. You know, it's so but it's more difficult it's because so, of First Amendment. And and it's so subjective, Michael. I did an exercise with 20 of our top clients a few weeks ago in California. And I've done this exercise in, in multiple places. We brought them in. We showed them two posts that people had made. And we said, should we keep them up? Take them down. Gave them our policies and said, what do you think? I was at one table with the first piece of content. And our whole table agreed. Take the content down. It borderlines hate speech, and, and we think it's just too close, so you should take it down. I thought this was an easy decision. The next table completely disagreed with us. Really? Said we were, um, by banning it, we were banning people's freedom of expression. We were jumping to conclusions about the intent, and it really wasn't negative. It was supposed to be meant in humor. And then the other table was split in the middle. And these are 20 of the most respected CMO, CEOs in a room, nobody agreeing. And I have done this exercise internally at Facebook. I've done it with clients. It is a very subjective, contextual thing about what the definition of hate speech is. And my barometer might be way more conservative. I'd rather take more things down because more things, right. I just say, okay, I'd rather have it, you know. Steer clear. Steer clear. And But, you know, there's a real argument about when I go to, as I said, when I go to countries that are not with that Western point of view, they're desperate for somebody to allow them to have freedom of expression. Yeah. Carolyn, I want to switch. I know there's a question coming. In today's market, as I said, the traditional brand marketers are now performance marketers, and the traditional performance marketers have always been brand marketers, but now it's like a two-headed monster. Facebook is the perfect place for that direct-to-consumer interaction. Are you seeing the uptake? Are you seeing that be prevalent in the conversations with advertisers and marketers? This is the biggest phenomenon we're seeing it. Um, we're seeing, ironically, about three years ago, I came back from Davos, Switzerland, having met with Nestle and Unilever and Coca-Cola and Procter and & Gamble and a lot of the CEOs. And I was having the same types of conversations with each of them. And I drew a graph when I came back. And the graph basically suggested that you've got companies that have been around for a very long period of time 
let's call them companies A and B. We can name all the big ones. And then you have companies that have been around for the last, could be six months, upwards of maybe five to 10 years. And I'll call them the X and Ys. You get some Zs in there that get a lot of money funded. They operate okay in the beginning and then they execute poorly. They crash. Every traditional company, call it the A and B, was asking how they could become more nimble and agile and data-driven and put the customer in the center and rethink their entire business in every vertical. So you have consumer packaged goods. How do I get my product directly to the consumer? Financial services. If you were going to launch a financial services company today, it would look more like a mobile fintech app than it would a traditional bank. If you were going to launch a new insurance company, it would look very different with probably social pooling of data to, to get rates. Every vertical, travel, I mean, you could literally go down each one of them. And so this phenomenon of traditional companies slash brand marketers, they have to become experts at performance marketing. And we're seeing some major shifts. We're seeing some of those big traditional companies, those A's and B's, that used to spend 90% of their budgets on brand awareness that are now shifted to almost 50% of their budgets on performance marketing, even if they don't have a true direct-to-consumer business where they're shipping a product to someone's home, but they have a direct-to-consumer offering and they're thinking performance. At the same time, when I went to Israel a couple of years ago, it's mostly all performance marketers. They're incredibly amazing with the data they use and how they target people. They were saying to me, how do we build a brand that's going to outlast any of us, that generations are going to be talking about our brand. So we don't just get in there, get the performance. We can optimize it like crazy, do really well. But how are we going to build a brand that lasts 100 plus years? So both the traditional and the DDC companies, the performance marketers, they can learn from each other. I just did a speech yesterday back in California to 200 e-commerce D2C CEOs. And that was one of my messages. They're amazing. They know they put a dollar into Facebook or Instagram and probably other platforms as well, but certainly ours. They put a dollar and they know exactly what comes out, how many customers they're getting, how many sales they're driving, but they need to build brands that consumers love. And so this is a real blending. I think the future talent is going to be these unicorn marketers that can talk out of literally can do both the art and science, the head and the heart, which ironically We've talked about for, I've been in the industry for 26 years. It's always been about art and science. It's always been about your head and heart. Now I'm seeing the real leaders of our industry, the ones that I say, okay, they're going to be taking it to the next level. They understand that it's got to be both. Look, you had an early stint at the Walt Disney Company in your career. And you look at the Walt Disney Company today and what Disney Plus is all about and that direct-to-consumer over-the-top delivery of content. And, And if you just went through the upfronts, uh, in our network, you know, environment, the blurring of the lines between that direct-to-consumer, over-the-top, and traditional linear broadcast and cable, it's blurred. I mean, everybody's selling, you know, the same thing with a different name on it. And the challenge that these companies are going to face is going to be, you know, enormous in changing their focus in, in as you say. Do it you find that to be... It requires a changing yeah, capabilities. It, it, it really does. Yes. And also one of the biggest areas where it's going to change is creative. I think the creative community and agency world is going to be the one that'll be one of the most disrupted over the next handful of years because people are not... When you are in a performance marketing arena, you are generating not one or two or five different pieces of creative. You are generating hundreds thousands. We have some clients that put a hundred thousand plus varieties of creative every day. And then the the machine optimizes. 
And so for a small business or somebody that's listening to this podcast going, how am I in the world going to have 100,000? The reality is you have a phone now. You can do all versions of creative. You can change the copy. You can test to see what's working. And we're just adapting creative in a much faster and much more real time. Yeah, and look, you know, Carolyn, it's an interesting place to go because I've been saying for a long time, people talk about the challenge to the advertising agency holding companies and the media agencies versus the creative agencies. And I've been saying for quite some time, it's actually the creative agencies who are more under siege than the media agencies for exactly that reason. People can do more of this on their own. It's not just a question of clients who are taking things in-house. There's obviously a cottage industry around what we call in-housing. But the traditional advertising agencies are not that good at the direct response world, at the direct-to-consumer world. They have to learn. It's new talent. It's new muscle. It's new experience. And, you know, there's a lot of do-it-yourself and a lot of, you know, self-serve. There is. There are pockets of excellence. And I think the at at even the traditional creative agencies and I think the challenge for them is how to scale that across their entire agency ecosystem. At the same time, they have disruptors coming at them, just like the big traditional companies have disruptors coming at them. There are disruptors in the agency community. We call them creative Facebook marketing partners, creative FMPs who will, for a very small, relatively speaking, small amount of money, crank out hundreds and thousands of iterations of creative. And so I think this is an it's an opportunity for the creative community to reinvent itself. There'll always be a market, in my belief, for the big idea. Absolutely. And they're just genius at that. I think the piece that they have to figure out is the production. Like, how do we make the production more inexpensive and more real time? We have to cut today. But when you come back, I definitely want to talk about e-commerce and and, Great. and, and the role. That's a and, big focus and, for it's us. A, it's, a, it's an important focus for all of us because, yes. you know, whether it's showrooming and everything else is done in a different way or what have you, I'd love to understand that. So I want your promise to come back. I will come back. I, I had lots of th- fun. I want to thank you for joining me today. And uh, thank you look- for having me. And thank you for your support um, and friendship. It's meant a lot and your guidance. So I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm Michael Casson. Thanks for listening to Good Company. Good Company is a production of iHeartRadio. A special thanks to Lena Peterson, Chief Brand Officer and Managing Director of MediaLink, for her vision on Good Company. And to Jen Seeley, Vice President, Marketing Communications of MediaLink, for programming amazing talent and content. Good Company is edited by Jessica Kreinchich. 